Welcome back to the Lars Resort. It's still the resort is still is still kicking on. We had a bit of a break, uh, a, a week or so, maybe a bit more, for me to, to rest my head, to to for, for, to deflate deflate the head. I mean that's that's medically unsound. Uh, j- just to relax a little bit, let the thoughts uh, percolate up in there before we crack on with so, some end of season stuff. Do you remember there was a season? There was a season of football that you might have moved on in your heads, but I have not. I have simply percolated in my head. So, uh, so we're going to do a couple of end of season stuff uh, as as advertised, as promised, as uh, referenced uh, towards the end of last season. But I forget to, the essentials. This is still the Lars Resort. If you have stumbled upon this podcast without knowing what you're getting into, uh, then I suppose I should apologize in advance. It, it is the Lars Resort with me, Lars Everson, brought to you by Betson. Thank you for listening. I've said like five times this season about Man City. That was like, oh, we got to have a big chat about Man City at some point. And I'm just going to push it down the road because this just isn't the most fun thing in the world to talk about. It's 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 a little complicated and it, it's a little dry. I think we have to get a little bit technical with some things. I think we are at a point with uh, some of these uh, football clubs and uh, the, the, the model of ownership and the model of funding that they have that we can't, I don't think we can just treat them as if they were completely normal football clubs because they're not and because of that i think we have to go deep on uh, on on uh, manchester city a little bit and and what are we talking about because of course they are the dominant force in english football uh, five titles in the last six seasons won the treble now at at long last uh, so so let's talk about man city and I, and i think we got to define some terms here right uh, because man city technically not a state-owned club you do see them referred to as a state-owned club sometimes they're not city are owned by sheikh mansour bin Syed al nayan who is the deputy prime minister of abu dhabi he's the minister for presidential affairs and he's part of the royal family his half brother is the president of the united arab emirates uh, he owns uh, manchester city he bought the club in 2008 through an entity that uh, at the time was rather unfortunately named Abu Dhabi United Group. You'd think they'd have some advisors on board to explain that if you're going to buy Manchester City, maybe not have the word United in the in the name of the company you're buying it with. Uh, anyway, human rights activists and experts on the Gulf states have repeatedly described the Manchester City project as a soft power exercise, as as image laundering or or as some kind of international networking exercise, you know, this sort of thing, that it's all about increasing the visibility and profile of Abu Dhabi uh, globally. I mean, the idea, and this is me putting it slightly crudely here, the idea is that Abu Dhabi uh, should be associated with success and glamour and, and, and men who kick the football uh, rather than, you know, human rights abuses and modern slavery and that kind of thing, which uh, which Amnesty and others will suggest goes on in Abu Dhabi quite a lot. Now, uh, this is what the experts will say. But as you all know, people in this country, we've had enough of experts and that these people who say these kinds of things, they are haters. They're they're jealous. They're haters and losers, and they need to go cry more. I, I've been reading the internet, as you can tell. And uh, at least that seems to be the view taken by some of the very angry people on the internet. And and what has been uh, described as as the party line, as they say from City, is now very much that this is just a private investment for Sheikh Mansour. It's got nothing to do with the state of, of Abu Dhabi, is the point that uh, gets made from the city side of things. And okay, sure, 
that is an alternative point being put forward. But I think it's also worth looking at what was being said on the city side uh, initially when the takeover first happened. Uh, in, in the statement uh, that was put out when they bought the club, uh, there was this, is, um, and I quote, it said, this is a massive achievement for the Emirate of Abu Dhabi, was the part of the statement that was put out when Abu Dhabi United Group bought the club. And, and now I'm going to further quote the, the statement here. Uh, by engaging into sports investment, Abu Dhabi United Group aims to reinforce Abu Dhabi's position as the capital of both sport and economic development uh, through supporting the Emirates sports and attracting the world's attention to the United Arab Emirates through this purchase of one of the oldest English clubs. Uh, that is uh, from the public statement that was put out when the Deputy Prime Minister of Abu Dhabi bought Manchester City. Now, this seems like a very strange way of wording it, I have to say. If this was just a personal investment, nothing to do with the state of Abu Dhabi, uh, some very odd wording here, uh, slightly contradictory, some might say, and it's not just the initial sort of statement. You can also listen to Gary Cook, who was the CEO at the time of the takeover, who they kind of inherited uh, from the previous regime, and who effectively kind of pitched the club to the prospective new owners. Now, he said in a recent podcast interview with The Athletic that the acquisition was, and I quote, all part of a major global strategy for Abu Dhabi as a nation. And furthermore, in an interview with Daniel Taylor, also for The Athletic, Cook said, what was the purpose of Manchester City to them? It was, how do we create a proxy brand for Abu Dhabi? We've already built a racetrack. We're in the sports business. We need a vehicle. And that was us, said Gary Cook, the former CEO of Manchester City. So that's kind of where we're at with it. Most experts on the area say it's a soft power image building vehicle for Abu Dhabi. The ownership said at the time when they bought the club that this was about, and I quote again, reinforcing Abu Dhabi's position. The CEO at the time has said that it was part of a major global strategy for Abu Dhabi and making City a proxy brand for Abu Dhabi. But... On the other hand, the line from City today is that this is just a personal investment on behalf of the owner. This has got nothing to do with Abu Dhabi, sort of whole soft power thing. And it's just the deputy prime minister buying this for the lols, I guess, or as a business acquisition. I guess you're just going to have to make up your own mind about it. You know, it's, it's word against word here. Uh, and and I'll be, I guess I'll be saying a lot of that because this is not the place for making wild accusations of anything. We're a pretty peaceful and, and chilled out resort. I just kind of prefer to, to point to facts and statements that are in the public domain and allow you, dear listener, to make up your own mind uh, what, what you believe the truth uh, to be. I'll allow you to join the dots uh, yourself. And here, certainly, there are dots that, that can be joined uh, quite easily. Now, since the summer of 2008, Manchester City have, uh, according to the eminent website transfermarkt.com, they have racked up a net spend of 1.6 billion euros, uh, comfortably the highest net transfer spend of any football club on the planet since uh, the uh, deputy prime minister of Abu Dhabi bought the club. Uh, how have they done that? Well, uh, they've always enjoyed some very generous commercial deals uh, with certain companies, uh, most of whom are linked to Abu Dhabi. Now, I, in fact, I, I would point you in the direction of Nick Harris at Sporting Intel on Twitter, who's done a lot of work uh, keeping track of this. And he's noticed that uh, from 2008 to 2019, Manchester City's commercial revenue increased by a thousand percent, 1,048 percent, in fact, which is a pretty incredible work uh, by their sales team. Some incredible deals uh, being done. Of course, the team has improved rapidly and put themselves right in the in the global spotlight, so obviously it makes sense that they get much better sponsor deals, but still a thousand percent is quite something. And for one thing, 
their revenue went up uh, by a hundred million during the pandemic, uh, when everyone else uh, were sort of having to cut cut down, and and their revenue was in the best case scenario it was flat, and a lot of people their revenue declined because they couldn't get people in the in the stadium and all that sort of thing. City made even more money during the this again. Uh, very, very impressive stuff. Uh, City now have the highest commercial revenues in the Premier League, which is particularly impressive given that they lag behind other clubs in areas that typically indicate, you know, popularity, interest from the public. Uh, they are fourth in the Premier League in terms of shirt sales. Again, the excellent Nick Harris has, has, has done the digging and looked into this. They're the fourth most watched Premier League team on TV. They have the fifth most followers on social media. So typically you'd think that the club that can point to, you know, the most interest from potential customers uh, w- would be the one who would get the best commercial deals. But City really bucking the trend here in spite of being not even remotely the most popular Premier League team or the one that gets the most eyeballs or generates the most public interest, they are the most uh, commercially profitable. They bring in the most commercial uh, income. So the marketing guys at City have somehow convinced uh, all these companies uh, to pay more uh, to sponsor a team that there are fewer eyeballs on and that the public is considerably less interested in than some of their rivals. Pay more, get less. Is this the ultimate sales trick, I think? from the marketing department of City. So so big ups to them. I, I, I think I have to reference again the very, very excellent Nick Harris who tweeted last year. Uh, massive props to the Manchester City commercial team who derive 56 plus percent of their global income from Etihad, Visit Abu Dhabi, Nextsend, which is uh, a tire company, I believe, that's partnered with the United Arab Emirates Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, Expo 2020 Dubai, Vega, Socios, and Emirates Palace. How do they do it? It's incredible, no terrace. Now, of course, it is possible that this is a club that's owned, again, as a personal investment uh, for, for Sheikh Mansour, that they just happen to have an unbelievably gifted marketing department who have gotten them some sweet, sweet deals in Abu Dhabi, and that all of these Abu Dhabi-owned or linked companies are more than happy uh, to pay more money to sponsor Man City than they would have had to pay to, to sponsor other teams that are more popular because of, I don't know, reasons. Uh, now... I haven't even touched on the leaked emails uh, that have been published in Der Spiegel, and I'm not going to. I'm just going to say the information is out there if you want to look up and learn more about it. Some interesting details about sponsorship arrangements in those emails uh, that were leaked. Uh, check them out. Make up your own mind. Now, someone who have made up their own mind, uh, seemingly are UEFA, who in 2014 fined City £49 million for FFP breaches. Then in 2020, they banned them from European competitions for two seasons and fined them €30 million, a verdict that City appealed to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, who found that most of the alleged breaches of FFP rules were either not established or time-barred. Now, the ban was lifted, but City were fined €10 million for not cooperating with the investigation. And the current situation with the Premier League is that Manchester City have been charged with 115 breaches of their financial rules during the period between 2009 and 2018. That case has been referred to an independent commission. Now, Manchester City said at the time when the charges were brought that the club welcomes 
the review of this matter by an independent commission to impartially consider the comprehensive body of irrefutable evidence that exists in support of its position. Now, very confusingly, uh, according to the Times and a few other outlets, Manchester City have also launched numerous legal challenges against the Premier League's charges, including raising an objection to the head of the Premier League's independent judiciary panel apparently being an Arsenal fan. Now, this seems like very strange behaviour. Uh, if you if you would if you both welcome the review because you have irrefutable evidence, you know, if I had irrefutable evidence of something. Probably I wouldn't worry too much that a barrister involved in the process is an Arsenal fan. I feel like the irrefutable evidence, if it is irrefutable, it cannot be refuted, probably trumps what teams the the, the guy on the commission supports. I don't know. Even more confusingly, uh, the lawyer leading the Manchester City defense, Lord Panic, is himself reportedly an an Arsenal fan. So this is very strange behavior all around does kind of make the club look a little bit small time, I, I, I have to say, but, but that's where it is. And it did prompt the uh, workers' rights advocate, Nick McGeehan, to tweet, that Manchester City defence playbook rolled out again. Step one, claim that you have irrefutable evidence to disprove the allegations. Step two, fight the charges on procedure. Step three, insinuate that there is an agenda against you. That does seem to be a three-step process that we see quite a bit with uh, with Manchester City. I mean, I'm a very simple soul. I'm, I'm, I'm very trusting in particular. I'm very trusting and gullible, uh, perhaps. So when Man City say that they have irrefutable evidence, I say, great, let's see it. You know, may, maybe just publish it. Do you have a website? I think you do. Uh, and, and I believe that, you know, if the evidence is irrefutable, then it cannot be refuted. So just show it. Sh- should be good. And if, you, and if that's not true, then maybe don't say it. And anyway, that's all a very brief summary of how we ended up here. Uh, and, and I think it is a backdrop to the treble win that I think it's very, very hard to ignore completely, though some broadcasters do seem to manage. Uh, I I understand that we're here because we like football and not the sort of trawling through boring rules and regulations. But in the case of City, it's hard to get away from it. It's hard to pretend it isn't a factor because, of course, it is, right? And there, there are two aspects of it. The first is how do you feel uh, about nation states either directly owning or at least backing uh, football clubs? especially nation states with very questionable human rights records. Uh, That's something that some people might have a problem with. And the second one is, do you believe that Manchester City have followed the rules that they signed up to, uh, that everyone else signed up to, and everyone has had to follow in the Premier League and other tournaments? Uh, Those are two big questions hanging over this. And on the second note first, whatever happens with the Premier League charges, I think there's always going to be a real trust deficit there i think if you survey a hundred random football fans in this country and ask them do you think manchester city have followed the rules these last 15 years and i'm not going to speculate on percentages but i think the result would be pretty one-sided right i, I think there's a real lack of trust there uh from uh, from fans uh, of, of other clubs and, and the public in general and i think that's kind of made worse by, by nonsense like City insisting, irrefutable evidence, but then also trying to fight the charges on procedural grounds, on the other hand. It just kind of doesn't make them look very credible. Now, does any of that matter to Man City? Probably not. Like They're, they're on top of the world right now for a lot of fans. This sense that they're under siege by the authorities and, and that they're in opposition to everyone, that seems to become part of the like supporter identity. When you go to games in City, there are very few louder noises of, uh, at the ground than the ritual booing of the Champions League anthem or the Premier League anthem, whichever one is being played. But, but in terms of what the team's legacy will be in the future, uh, the fact that a significant amount of people who aren't Man City fans believe that things haven't been done by the book, that will, of course, affect 
what the team's legacy is and how the team will be viewed in the future. There, there's no doubt about it. On, on the issue of where the money comes from, sports washing, etc., I honestly kind of feel like that battle has been fought and lost. I just think it's the reality of football in 2023. This was the season where Lionel Messi, while under contract with Qatar's PSG, won the World Cup in Doha, and Abu Dhabi's Manchester City won the Champions League in Erdogan's uh, Turkey in Istanbul. I mean, for dictatorships and problematic regimes who want to use football to sanitize their image... It's been a bit of a slam dunk this season, no? It, it couldn't have gone much better. Uh, and as much as you see uh, City fans suggest that the authorities are out to get them, uh, the, the footballing authorities seem to have really no problem with, with any of this stuff. They do, of course, at least have to try to police their own rules and bring charges if they believe the rules have been broken. But the question of where the money comes from, sports washing and stuff like this, the football authorities really don't care. I mean, once the Premier League decides that it's okay to have a club owned by Saudi Arabia, I think it's pretty clear that it's a, draw, a line is not going to be drawn anytime soon. And, and, and I suppose, really, it's quite lucky for the Premier League that North Korea can't afford a Premier League team because I think Kim Jong-un flying through the fit and proper persons test would be kind of awkward for, for everyone involved. Uh, I digress. I've personally kind of made an uneasy piece with it in the sense that I don't think... I don't think it makes sense to pretend that what Argentina did at the World Cup either didn't happen or didn't matter because of where it was held. I don't think it makes sense to just completely ignore Manchester City's uh, achievements on the field, even though the context we've spoken about is an important uh, caveat. The club that spent more money than anyone else on the planet the last 15 years has become the most successful club. Go figure. Now, I I wish football was a sport that wasn't quite as happy to let anyone with money use its power, use its power of reach, its power of influence uh, for whatever they want, as long as they can pay. Like that's that seems to be the deal in football. I wish someone at some point had sat down and said, "Listen, football clubs aren't just businesses; they're community assets, they're social institutions. They play an important role in the cultural fabric of of our nation, and we should probably put safeguards in place so they can't be bought and exploited by literally anyone who has money." But but no one said that. At least no one in a position of authority in the UK, at least, uh, said that. So so we are where we are. I think football in England is particularly vulnerable to exploitation by problematic investors because of the history and culture of ownership here. You know, in some other countries, at least you have some tradition of fan ownership and clubs just being organized in a slightly different way. So they can't be playthings for for wealthy individuals. Here in the UK, it's always been like a, a local industrialist who owned the local football club for whatever reason. Maybe he just had a lot of money and liked football and wanted to spend it on football. Maybe he was a, a local fat cat who wanted to, you know, put his town on the map a bit. Maybe owning the football club was good for, for networking, you know, a way for a local businessman to, to put himself at the heart of, of the local community. All kinds of reasons. But the idea of a club being owned by a wealthy individual and who is thus entitled to kind of do what he wants with it, that that's a pretty fundamental thing here. And for a long time, really, the worst case scenario as far as owners went, and probably still is the case, fans feel the worst case scenario is that you have an owner who even either doesn't have money or doesn't want to spend it on the team. That's like the worst thing that can happen. So with this being the culture for so long, when the game increasingly became less and less local, more national and then international, and the Premier League eventually became a fully global uh, thing, kind of made sense that you would go from local wealth to international wealth and ultimately global wealth on the ownership side. You know, know, why not? Seems like a logical continuation. And no one really sat down and asked the question, where does this end? If we're happy to accept investment from literally anyone, 
what's the possible endpoint of that direction? And is that a place we want to end up? This seems like a conversation that just never took place. And so now we're in the situation where uh, the, the national sport is increasingly dominated uh, by a club that's you know, either a plaything or a PR vehicle, depending on, on who you believe, for, for a foreign state. That seems bad to me. I don't think that's what sport should be about. I, I, I worry, but I worry that it's kind of too late to do anything about it now. Uh, like I said, I don't believe in cancelling a specific club or tournament because you have thoughts about the ownership or where it's held or whatever. Um, but knowing where to draw the line becomes becomes impossible because wherever you turn in football, there's something not to like. You know, I'm not going to mention examples because whenever you do that, it just sounds like whataboutism, which kind of isn't the point. The point is more that a sport where we're happy and comfortable with all the, the various actors and owners and sponsors and whatever, that's just not something we're going to have at elite level club football in 2023. It just isn't a thing. So following the sport means engaging in a constant moral compromise where there's just really no definitive solution. I kind of wish I wish I had the line that I could say that's like, oh, this makes us all feel good about it. It doesn't exist. You just kind of have to constantly wrestle with it. And here's the thing. Even if you don't care about where the money comes from or whether a club has followed the rules or not, having certain owners spending this much money, what it does is accelerate the process of talent being concentrated in an ever smaller group of clubs. You know, the, the best and worst example of this, of course, is Paris Saint-Germain. You know, part of the reason I'm so snippy about PSG is because they've effectively deprived us of, of good football. You know, seeing Mbappe, Messi and Neymar in the same team, anyone who knows anything about how football is played at the elite level in 2023 will tell you that that will not work. You will have a team with three players who do nothing off the ball. So you effectively have seven outfield players when you don't have possession. Now, because the French League is so weak, uh, you should win the league anyway. If you're not going to win in Europe, and here's the thing. In a normal world, these three players would each be the focal point of their own teams, right? Messi would be the creative fulcrum for one team, Neymar of another, and Mbappe can be the sun god of a third team if he wants. And you would have three good, maybe great teams. But because you have one club in Paris Saint-Germain who have an unlimited budget and like children in the toy shop, they just want loads of shiny things. Uh, instead, instead of three great teams, we get one really dysfunctional one. You get Messi, the best player of all time, wasting two of the seasons he had left on this nonsense. You get Neymar wasting his best years on this nonsense. And you see Mbappe pick up loads of like bad habits uh, and very possibly become less than the player he could have been because he's used to playing for a team where most weeks you don't have to make that much of an effort. So, so for me, I just want to watch good players play good football. And what you get here, there's just so much wastage. Anyway, you know, there are some industries where extra investment means more innovation and, and, and invention. And you can maybe accept that money from problematic sources can, on balance, be a good thing because there's an upside in terms of inventing stuff and, and creating growth or whatever. In football, you're not growing extra players here. The, the extreme amounts of investment from certain clubs, the only thing that causes is for wages to go up. And, and for more of the best players to be grouped together in an ever smaller uh, you know, cluster of clubs, which makes the whole sport more predictable and less interesting. So, so the people who run the sport, they're just stuck in this mindset of more money, good, less money, bad. Uh, but, but, you know, there is enough money at the top end of football. There really is. There's not a resource problem here. There's a distribution problem. 
if you look at the sport across the board quite clearly. Anyway, I'm getting way into the weeds, but as you can tell, I do wrestle with this subject a a little bit. Uh, And for me personally, I'm obviously uh, emotionally compromised here in the case of Erling Haaland, because seeing a kid from my hometown score through all these goals and win the Champions League, you know, if that doesn't register an emotional response from you, then then you're probably a bit dead inside. You know, you need to talk to someone about that. And, And if you find... If if you find yourself enjoying Kevin De Bruyne's passing or Jack Grealish's close control or Guardiola's tactical machinations, I think that's fine. I think that should be fine. You should be allowed to enjoy these things, whether you're a City fan or not. Maybe it does make us a bit complicit in some small way, but but like I felt with the World Cup, I just don't accept that we should allow our enjoyment of the sport to be taken away from us entirely by the sort of spineless people who are in charge of the sport. Uh, We should try to be mindful about what this is and what it isn't. And I think broadcasters have a particular responsibility, especially the ones that have a big audience, unlike myself. Uh, They have a responsibility to continue to raise the caveats and not just go along with the sort of rose-tinted version of the sport to bring up the problematic aspects of it and to do it even at times where it feels inconvenient to do it. And, and, and some do a great job at that. Some do a very terrible job at, at just completely brushing over it. But if we're talking about just the sporting side of it, the money City have spent obviously makes this achievement less interesting and less impressive. That That's clear. But it's still a treble and it's still five titles in six seasons. And of course, it is possible to spend a lot of money without being very successful. We know this because remember that list I looked up with the highest net spend since City got their new owners? Runners up behind Manchester City in second place is Manchester United. I don't think any further comment is necessary there. We've seen uh, across town in Manchester that it's entirely possible to spend a, an incredible amount of money without achieving much of anything. What we've also learned, we've learned that you can spend a lot of money and fail totally It is also possible, we have learned, to be the glamour project of a Gulf state and make a far worse job of it than Manchester City. Witness the team that has the fourth highest net spend in the world since 2008, Paris Saint-Germain. And and I guess they have been successful at at building a brand, I guess you'd say, to be fair to them. When I travel outside of England, I I typically see more PSG shirts than Man City shirts knocking around. Uh, But in the sporting sense, they are a nonsensical entity. And, And it is fascinating to me, by the way, another detour here, uh, that the president of PSG, Nasser Al-Khalifi, is now the chairman of the European Club Association. You've got to love an industry that looks at PSG, who have thrown so much money at it that their domestic league is now pointless, uh, who, who keep having to change manager because they have a squad of just pampered stars uh, and, and just man babies who are just completely unmanageable. You know, the squad cannot be managed. So the, the coach has to be changed regularly. And, and they always fail in Europe, of course, because the team is much more of a guest list than a team that's been assembled to actually play good football. You've got to admire an industry that looks at the president who's overseeing all of this nonsense and spent all of this money and thought, yeah, this guy's got some pretty good ideas. We want to hear more from this guy. Yeah, sure. Yeah, put him in charge of the European Club Association. Why not? Like, he seems to know what's up. Anyway, I digress. Manchester City, for all I joke about their uh, uncanny ability to land commercial deals, on the football side of it, you can't really fault them. In terms of investing 
in the academy and putting the sporting project right at the center of everything they do, uh, hiring a manager with a clear vision and then recruiting players uh, for the team because they fit that vision and not because they're big shiny names necessarily. Where Paris Saint-Germain are just a clown car and an ongoing farce. Uh, Manchester City are sleek, they're efficient and, and it works. Uh, five league titles in six years in England, of course, that is a testament to this next season. They could become the first English club to ever win four league titles in a row. And of course, they've managed to finally win the Champions League. And I say finally because for several of Guardiola's seasons with City, the team has looked to me like the best team in Europe. Or at least, you know, it's hard to measure that absolutely, I guess. But but they have looked like the best team, the most impressive team. But they've found some kind of weird and wonderful way to, to mess up in, in, in the Champions League. One of the odd things about this final against Inter is that if you look at the games where they've failed in the Champions League before, they've often played much better in defeat than they did in in victory uh, in this final, I thought. I mean, Inter really did everything right. I mean, City, one thing was that Inter were denying them space in the areas where they usually operate, you know, in the channels and and blah-de-blah-de-blah. City also just looked a bit frazzled, you know? You saw players make sloppy passes of the kind that you're not really used to seeing, little mistakes here and there. Uh, Inter managed to keep the Viking King, you know, the Lord of Goals, the Combine Harvester of Doom. He was he was mostly quiet by sort of sitting deep and denying him space, but also limiting supply. Ke- Kevin De Bruyne had to come off with an injury. B- but even with all these things kind of going against City, you know, did, did anyone really think Inter could do it? And eventually City get their goal. It's a very, very Man City goal, a very clever little through ball that Inter just aren't able to intercept. DiMarco falls over. Ball is cut back to Rodri, of all people, who who scores a very good goal. But that sort of through ball, cut back finish, I mean, we've seen that a hundred times before. Uh, Rodri, by the way, is probably like the hipster shout for player of the season, no? If, if you're not going to give it to the aforementioned Lord of Goals for scoring all the goals. I think Rodri is just uh, just fantastic. Inter tried to come back. You know, they have some chances. Romelu Lukaku misses a big chance. You know, bad night for big rum. But uh, it, it, there was something weird about... It felt very unmemorable as a neutral, of course. Probably didn't feel that way for the players. Uh, but, but when I remember writing the betting preview for the game, I, I initially wrote that actually winning the final almost feels like an afterthought because City's d- supremacy, their dominance, was so firmly established when they beat Bayern Munich and Real Madrid. They, they, they're so clearly the best team in Europe right now that actually beating Inter in the final almost feels like an afterthought. I wrote that. Then I looked at the sentence and thought, ah, better rephrase that. You know, (laughs) winning the Champions League final at last, just an afterthought. You know, there will be tweets. But it did feel a bit like that. It did feel like they'd done the hard part and now they just needed to get it, push it across the line. And there just never was a lot of of genuine peril there, I I didn't think, even though things were clearly not going for them really in the game. Why did they win the treble now and not before? I think that's kind of an interesting question uh, because this isn't the highest points total they've ever had in the league not by a long way um some of that i think is because guardiola took a while to find uh, the ideal team from this group of players uh for for him to find the best way of using Alling hall on and how you adjust the rest of the team to that we've spoken about it before uh but but the answer was uh, simplistic in the way very clever ideas often are so okay this is an oversimplification on my part but one of the reasons why city dominate possession the way they do is that they usually have a striker who drops into midfield helps create overloads and and passing angles and they're able to dominate possession Partially because of that. Obviously, it's a lot about what they do on the training ground and all this sort of stuff. But it's also have an extra midfielder because the striker
striker drops down, right? Well, now they have a striker who is is probably willing to try to do that, but who I don't really don't think he wants to. And crucially, I don't think he really has the skill set for it. I think I don't think he gets the best use of him. So what do you do? Well, instead of gaining superiority in midfield by having a striker drop down, why don't we gain superiority in midfield by having a defender move up? It's it's such a simple idea. It's obviously much more complicated in the way it's executed, but there's a kind of simplistic genius to it there. And uh, supposedly there were also some trouble in the dressing room earlier in the season, and that sending Juan Cancelo away kind of helped alleviate that. Either way, after the World Cup, after January... City were just amazing when the team came together. They became this completely unstoppable force. There's another thing that's worth mentioning, which is City kept much fewer clean sheets this season than they did last season. Uh, They kept a clean sheet, and I think it was 34% of their games this season. Last season, it was 55%. I believe those numbers are are accurate. So uh, FPL players out there, they know. uh, City defenders haven't been much use for them this, uh, this year. And... I think we said this before the Champions League final. There's this great stat that they uh, they allowed more opponent touches in their box this season than in any of Guardiola's seasons in the, at the club so far. Any of them. Even that first season when the squad was still a bit goofy and Guardiola was still trying to implement his style and, and all that. I think that's really interesting uh, because Guardiola, as we know is obsessed with control. You know, he wants to control the game. And I exaggerate a little bit, but I honestly think Guardiola is happier with a 2-0 win in which City have 70% possession and totally stop the opponent from playing than he would be with, let's say, a 5-1 win where they have 55% possession and the game moves back and forth much more. Guardiola wants to control the game. Uh, that's that's what so much of what he's done in his coaching career has been about. Uh, now, this season... As good as City have been, they have had a little bit less control than before. I suspect that this is why I've actually enjoyed their games a bit more. It's it's more fun to watch when it sort of when it uh, goes a bit more back and forth, and it's not just sort of City playing short passes all the time. Um, but it's interesting to me that the season where Guardiola and City changed their approach a little bit, give up a tiny bit of control. Uh, that they don't always strangle teams quite as comprehensively as they've done before, that's the season when they finally win the Champions League. Now, I always think it's difficult to analyze the sort of... Now, I always think it's difficult to analyze and draw big-picture conclusions from the Champions League because it's a knockout tournament. And in a low-scoring game like football, there's always going to be a lot of variance and, and weird things can happen. But you do observe certain patterns all the same like Real Madrid winning the Champions League four times between 2014 and 2018, but only winning La Liga once in that period. And in the opposite end, Manchester City winning the Premier League five out of six seasons and now only winning the Champions League once in that period. So it's a bit of an oversimplification, but my working theory is that the team with the best collective, the best machine, the best system will win the league because when you have a system that really works, as we've seen with Manchester City this last half decade, Uh, that gives you a consistency over 38 games. That means you'll run up the highest points total in the league. But when it comes to the knockout games, that's where I wonder if perhaps these sort of perfect system teams can come unstuck a little bit and that having more variation in the way you play, having more big individuals uh, in the team and and giving them a little bit more freedom can can be helpful. Uh, The team still needs to make sense. It's not as easy as... uh, you can't just say a system wins you the league, big moments from big players wins you the knockout tournaments, because if that was true, well, I will again refer you back to Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, but but I think City, they've had seasons where they've been more dominant across the Premier League season than they've been this year. 
but they came unstuck in the Champions League, perhaps because when the system kind of broke down and failed a bit, when the collective didn't work the way it usually does, when they were put under pressure, they lacked individuals who could kind of step up and just get things done. And they lacked uh, an alternative way of playing if they if it just what kind of wasn't working on, on the day. That, I think, is a, is a plausible theory. You know, Real Madrid, when they had that incredible run of Champions League wins, there's nothing interesting about what they were doing tactically. There, there wasn't any sort of clever innovation going on. They just had some incredible individual players who just knew how to get it done in the big moments. And, and, and that, for a while, felt like the opposite of what Manchester City was. And perhaps it isn't a coincidence that in the season where they give up a little bit of that control, but instead introduce a bit more variety in the way they play, that's the season they finally win the Champions League. I think that's a theory that uh, that has a bit of merit. It is also true that uh, while City have been the best team in Europe before, I would argue there have been seasons where, where they were, when, even though they didn't win the Champions League, I would say that this season... I mean, there really is a big gap between them and, and, and the rest, isn't there? I mean, you, you can't really make a case for anyone outside the Premier League certainly being better than them uh, without being laughed out of the room. You know, Real Madrid, we saw what happened there. Barcelona have made progress under Xavi, but they're not there yet. Juventus are just awful. Uh, Bayern are having an off year, as we saw in the Bundesliga. Dortmund clearly not amazing, as they couldn't even uh, get past the misfiring Bayern in, in the league. Uh, who else? PSG are a clown car still. Napoli played some amazing football earlier in the season, but kind of tailed off a bit and, and weren't very good when they went out to Milan, who themselves aren't great. Inter, as we saw, not amazing. So, so no one's really any good right now. And that's not taking anything away from City. I think their performance against Real Madrid was just, you know, we talked about it, era-defining stuff. You know, one of the standout performances for any club side in the last few years. But, but who were realistically the challengers this season? You know, Arsenal did their best in England, but, uh, but but couldn't keep the distance and weren't in the Champions League. Tottenham, clearly not a serious club this season. Um, I guess you were kind of looking to Liverpool as a team who could maybe go toe-to-toe with, with City on a good day, but we saw what happened there. So this is not to take anything away from City. They're the best team in the world, not just this season, but over the last five seasons. They're clearly the standout uh, club team in, in world football. And the Champions League title, if anything, felt felt overdue. But, but it is also true that the win, when it eventually came, it came in a season where really none of the other big clubs have, have fully got their act together, I, I would argue. So no doubts there. Uh, Manchester City, the rightful kings of Europe on the pitch. Lots of caveats and asterisks about how the team was built and for what purpose. Uh, but it is what it is. Uh, what the players have done on the field I don't think can be disputed as such. And for what it's worth, which is maybe not a lot, I have found the team a lot more likable and interesting in a sporting sense this season. Maybe because they're a bit more varied in the way they play. The tactically interesting stuff we've spoken about. Jack Grealish is such a fun player to watch when he's on his game, and he's obviously been been much better this year. But of course, listen, I I would say all of that, but at the end of the day, I am a Tottenham fan from Bruna. So watching Erling Haaland stop Arsenal from winning the league title, sure. I, I obviously enjoyed watching that a little bit more than I have enjoyed uh, watching uh, watching other City title wins for uh, entirely uh, subjective reasons. Uh, whoa. Well, I, I'm not going to apologize for this going long um, because, of course, we've had a break from the resort, so should be some extra content. And also just because we needed to we needed to have a long chat about it and at least address some of the issues and, and talk about them because I think pretending they don't exist 
is is not a viable uh, approach and then i wish there was like a like a good answer but i'm afraid there isn't i think that's just football in 2023 there is just this kind of constant moral compromise that you have to deal with and that you have to wrestle with and and it's up to everyone individually to to see where they land really um lastly of course we're in the off season uh, no sort of weekly treble no weekly betting column I, I did the international football honestly I find betting on international football challenging at the best of times in this sort of window when half the players are knackered half of them are like mentally on holiday I, you know I'm 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 just staying well clear of that I got to be honest with you so for a betting segment at the end of this I'm not sure where we'll go with it it's fun to look at the odds for who's winning the league next season because City are huge huge favorites to do it again at 1.65 165 is the price at Betson for City to win it again. Now, of course, historically, it's difficult to do. It's difficult to do four in a row. No one's done it before. There are will be some changes in the squad as it seems. Gundogan possibly moving on. Kyle Walker possibly moving on. So some some changes. So, so it's it's not necessarily going to be super easy for them to go again. But who do we think can actually challenge him? Arsenal, you'd expect them to try to follow up this season. You know, a lot of the players who, who took them uh, to on this sort of title challenge this season are young, who you'd expect to get even better. So Arsenal are second favourites at a price of eight. Uh, Liverpool third favourites at nine. And uh, Man United also at nine, with Chelsea down at 13. Uh, Manchester, Newcastle United at 15. And Spurs all the way down in 40. Uh, which is, I mean, I feel like that's a discussion we can have when we get closer to next season. But uh, the the bookmakers really don't uh, fancy Tottenham's chances in the future, and I suppose uh, that is uh, that is fair enough. One thing, I mean, Gary O'Neill getting sacked. We're not going to do a whole thing about that, but I can understand the ownership. You know, they they took over. Uh, they have their ideas of how to run the club. They inherited Gary O'Neill. I just wonder if maybe they're underestimating the job he did in keeping what is not a great squad in this division. They're bringing in Andoni Iraola uh, from uh, from uh, previously of Rayo Vallecano, who is very highly rated. I'm sure he's very good. Um, but I, I think, again, not for the first time, I've sort of foolishly written off Bournemouth and that's come back to bite me. But I do wonder if Bournemouth to get relegated could be one of our season bets for next season. Uh, just because well, we'll see how much they strengthen in the window and all that sort of stuff. But the, this is a team who I think did extraordinarily well to stay up and, and getting rid of Gary O'Neill after that. It feels a little bit harsh. Maybe the ownership kind of underestimating uh, just what it took to keep that group in the league. They could sign a bunch of players. So that's why we don't do like season uh, bets until we get closer to the season uh, starting. It could be that they do lots of stuff in the transfer window and they enter next season as a much more exciting team. But certainly for now, uh, 2.75 on Bournemouth to get relegated next season is, uh, yeah, that's an interesting price, I think, because I, I don't. I, I wonder about the direction that they're they're going in. Perhaps I'll have to eat those words later on in the window. We will see. Thanks for listening to this very long episode. Listen, we had to do it. We had to have a big city chat. I, I kept, you know, pushing it forward, postponing it, pushing it ahead of me. Uh, but but here it is. We've had the big city chat. And uh, and I hope you, if, you, if you're still listening, good Lord, thank you so much for staying. To, I mean, I'm very humbled that you stuck with it for that long. I uh, hope you're having a lovely summer. Uh, maybe this could be like a, a thing you listen to as you go for a lovely summer walk or something. I don't know. Well, what do you do when you listen to this pod? Uh, 
contact me at Lars Davidson on Twitter, either on tweet or DM, and uh, I'd be intrigued to know. Uh, anyway, this has now gone on for very, very long. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.